Well, hey everyone, good morning, and welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at Res City. Uh, special welcome if you're just visiting us here for the first time, just checking us out for some reason, maybe visiting with a friend. Just happy to have you here worshiping with us this Sunday morning. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to hop into our sermon today. We're in a series, as you can see behind me, called What is Sin? I'll kind of explain what we'll be talking about here in just a sec, but let's, let's pray first. Lord, thank you for being with us this morning, for filling us with your presence as we gather together your people uh, coming together to worship you, to join in fellowship, to try to grow more like your son, Jesus, Lord. I pray that you'd help us to do that this morning uh, as we study your word, as we consider what it means for us to learn from that wisdom and to seek it out in our lives, God, uh, whatever that looks like. Be with us, we pray, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So a couple weeks ago, Julie and I stayed at a hotel for like the first time in forever, uh, I can't even remember really off the top of my head the last time we actually stayed in a hotel because whenever we go anywhere, I don't know about you, we mostly just stay in Airbnbs and VRBOs. Is that, is that kind of your experience? Like you, when, you, when you travel somewhere, you basically only do Airbnbs and VRBOs now? Okay, maybe not. But I think that they're super cool. I think there's a reason that there's a big, I think, shift in people's sort of you know, travel plans in, in doing that because it's really cozy and comfortable. People are giving you access to like almost all of their house. Right? In most places I stay, there's maybe there's one room that's locked off, and then but everything else you can totally get into. You're getting to use people's TVs, their microwaves, their coffee makers, their air conditioning, Netflix, fireplace. I, Julie and I even stayed in one recently where like, they had bikes for us to use to ride around town. It was really cool. So it's just awesome. Okay, so that's really cool, but it's especially annoying, I have to imagine, if you're a host of an Airbnb or when people take that hospitality and they sort of use it in a, in a way that you as the host never intended them to do by giving them access to all the stuff that's in your house, all right? So I looked up a couple horror stories on this, all right? And there's, as you can imagine, there are some pretty awful ones online. So let me read a few to you here. First one, a group stayed and left the place pretty messy, but we couldn't figure out what the smell was. It turns out they left a full pig in a trash bag under the kitchen table. They had tried to cook a pig on a spit and failed and basically left its mainly raw corpse just sitting under the table for the host to pick up. Ugh, that's pretty gross, huh? Okay, here's another one. A friend of mine rented to a girl who was convinced that there were cameras hidden all around the unit. She dismantled the lighting fixtures, the picture frames, the medicine cabinets, the remote controls, etc. She also depotted plants, removed smoke detectors, hid all the refrigerator magnets, and destroyed a cell phone looking for, for secret cameras that were hidden around. Okay, last one here. This is actually some, a couple of them that someone posted. Um, this, this is a person who worked in a call center that handled some of Airbnb's customer service complaints. All right, this first one. Uh, a guest filled a mug with human crap and left it in the host's microwave when they left. Okay, all right, last one here. One guest was from, this one's actually kind of funny because they were well-meaning. One guest was from a culture that eats iguanas, and they barbecued up a seven-year-old girl's pet iguana to serve to the family as thanks for hosting him. Yeah. Okay, so these are kind of funny, right? But I think we also intuitively can feel that it's not okay 
either, right, to do all of these things. It, like, it's funny to hear these stories. It would be a nightmare to deal with this stuff if you were the host, right? We can kind of feel like that's not how you're supposed to use these people's hospitality or the stuff that they're letting you use, right? Even though you're paying to essentially take what has been given and make the decision that you ought to be able to use it in a way that the host never intended for your own ends, that's just not cool, right? And actually, we have a word for that, I think, that we would use to describe these things, and that word is vandalism, right? That's probably how we would describe this. You've taken, you know, kind of someone's property and, and, and kind of destroying it intentionally for some other purpose, right? Okay, I think that that word, that idea of vandalism is helpful. I bring this up because I think at its base, this is a good reflection of how sin works, when we really deeply try to understand it in the Bible. And this is a series, we're in our second week now, where we're, we're t- taking a long look at this question, what is sin? It's on the screen behind me here. What is sin? And we're trying to examine it from multiple angles to try to give it a depth that it often doesn't have when people use it. Uh, today, try to recapture the word in some senses and gain a deeper understanding of, I think, the surprising way that we, as we study, we can actually find grace and hope and mercy and not shame as we really study this in the way I think that Scripture and Jesus wants us to understand it. So we're doing that for a few weeks here, and uh, we're in our second sermon on it today. And this is kind of our first real deep dive into one angle of understanding what sin is. And today what I want to talk about is how sin is vandalism of shalom. It's vandalism of shalom. And We'll jump into all of this stuff and, dis- and describe it here in, in just a little bit. And it was some kind of a big concept, right? And maybe you never heard the word shalom. We'll talk about what all that means here as we go. Now, I'm taking this description from a book um, by an author named Cornelius Plantinga. The book is called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Um, and we're going to be uh, relying on his work today quite a bit. I think it's a very helpful way to understand this. So I want to, what we'll do today, here's kind of the flow of the sermon. I want us to explain biblically what this means and give, uh, get us to reflect on how we contribute to that, but also how we're affected by it, how we ourselves have maybe been vandalized, vandalized um, because of sin, and to end on God's response to that, to turn us into van- from vandals into saints. That's God res- God's response to vandalism of his shalom, is to turn us from vandals into saints. All right, so to understand this phrase, let's get into it, and let's go all the way back to the very beginning, to the start of, of the Bible, into the creation account. So let's go Genesis 1. Uh, I'm going to read through verses 1 to 5 here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. And evening passed and morning came, marking the first day. Okay, so you have at the very beginning here, you have God and his spirit. Remember in our last series, we talked about this a little bit too, the way that God's spirit is active in creating life and bringing life out of chaos, right? We talked about that in the last series, and we're going to go back to this, right? Again, God takes chaos and the mess of unformed creation where there is no order, and he arranges it into his order, okay? Here he is separating light from the dark, and he's assigning the light to the daytime and the dark to the nighttime, 
right? And he repeats this process, if you're familiar with the story at all, he repeats this process for five more days, doing it with all these other elements of creation, kind of assigning some things to one place and pulling some things apart from others, right? To kind of put it into this order where you have water and sky and sun and moon and animals and ultimately humans that are being set into this this order that God has set it all up in. Like a painter taking a bunch of paint, just sitting in these different bottles, right? No purpose, and how they're sitting in those, and, and through intention and design, turning it into a beautiful painting, ordering this once purposeless paint into something with order and beauty. That's what God is doing here, right? Or you could think of it like an Airbnb host, putting everything into a specific place for a specific purpose to be used in a certain way for the best experience for the visitor, now, Cornelius Planting, this guy I talked about earlier, he calls this process separating and binding. Separating and binding. He is separating some things from others because they're not supposed to go together and binding some things with others because they are supposed to go with one another. Separating water from land and into lakes and oceans and putting the fish there, right? That's where the fish are supposed to go. Binding the fish to the water and separating the land and the land animals from the water, right? Binding trees and rhinoceroses and all these things onto this thing called land. And, and ultimately separating humans from animals and binding humans to one another. That's this process we see played out through the book of Genesis. And Plantinga notes that this final product, when we get to the very end of all of it, where everything in creation is ordered, how it's supposed to be, and complete, is something that scripture in other places refers to with a word, a Hebrew word called shalom. Right? So God's ordering of the world produces shalom. That's what I want, you to, want us to understand here. Now, this is a word you might be familiar with. It is a word that gets used sometimes uh, by people, even if you're not a Hebrew scholar, you know, maybe you have still heard this word before. What it means is it means something like peace. That's often how it gets translated in English, where things harmonize together like they're supposed to. They're complete and they're whole, where the conditions for real flourishing are in place. Everything is in tune with everything else. Like an Airbnb, where the microwave is used for food, not human crap. Where a little girl's pet iguana stays a pet and is not used for food. Where the guests have trust with the Airbnb owner, right? There's a peace, there's a harmony between the guest and the owner, so they don't feel like they have to distrust the owner so much that they're scrambling to look for hidden cameras all throughout the place, right? That sort of order and harmony kind of helps us understand what I think shalom looks like. When we and the world are in harmony as God designed, we are in shalom. We are in shalom. It's the condition that God set the world up in from the start to have this shalom so that there can be flourishing and wholeness and delight. This is how it's all supposed to be designed to work. But if you're familiar with the story at all from here, you know that that's not how things stayed. Right? You have Adam and Eve, these first humans that God creates, and with some help from a, a talking snake with legs, who we'll talk about here a little bit later on in this series, they begin to distrust God and his shalom, and they decide to rearrange things a little bit way, a little bit more into a way that is in their liking. And while you know, that might seem like a small infraction to us, what we see that is unleashed in that moment as we keep reading the chapters just right after it is things go pretty downhill fast from there. 
right? You have brothers start to kill brothers. That's the first story after this. You have men bragging in just extreme macho fashion about how they're going to completely dominate their enemies. Um, you have humans dabbling with forces that are beyond them uh, for even greater evil. And then finally, you get to the flood, where everything has become so disordered that the land and the sea are no longer separated. They actually come back together again. Things that were supposed to be separated uh, are no longer separated, and things that were supposed to be bound together are no longer bound together. Undoing God's careful ordering in the creation story. And Scripture becomes this never-ending story of people living in this loop over and over again. So if we describe it all this way, sin is vandalism of shalom. Okay, it is vandalizing the shalom that God has put the world into. It is separating things that are supposed to be bound together and binding together things that are supposed to be separated. Right? It's our attempt to play God, to rearrange the elements of creation in a way that God never intended in an effort to create our own shalom. Or sometimes, honestly, it's just to straight up twist and pervert God's shalom for no other purpose other than enjoyment of that. When we have a shallow definition of sin, right, some of the stuff we talked about last week, I think, you know, if we, if we think, like, for example, shame, sin is just doing something that feels good or right and then being shamed for it, I think we would wonder why God might be so easily offended, right? We might think, God is, why is God so interested in ruining someone's fun or joy by putting limitations on things, right? And I think when we have these sorts of ideas of what sin is, it makes God scary to people, and it does make sin feel kind of taboo. But when we start to put it all in this context, we realize that it's not any more wrong of God to be upset with the vandalism of his shalom than it is for an Airbnb host to be upset that someone cooked their kid's iguana for a meal, to pull down all the light fixtures and pull the plants out of their pots, or bo- you know, to botch cooking a pig and then just leave the mess there for someone else to pick up. I think we can understand why this would bother us. Because no one would blame the Airbnb host for being upset, for seeking some payment, some restitution or compensation back for the vandalism that had been done to their home. Right? If we understand that, I think we can understand that in the same way God is upset when someone comes along and vandalizes what he has ordered, what he has put into creation. Sin understandably makes God angry. It's the twisting of what he made for some other purpose than what he created for. Okay, but it's not just that his, you know, his pride is wounded, right? Like, like some, some kid who builds a big Lego set and then their brother comes along and knocks it over and they're just annoyed about it. Okay, that's not what we're talking about here. Okay, God is annoyed because when Shalom is vandalized, the people and the creation that God loves so dearly that he created are hurt. They're damaged, they're scarred. There are real effects to it. It's not a small infraction. It's not just messing with God's, uh, you know, he's not, he's not like an OCD person who needs everything to look a certain way and is, it's annoyed when someone messes it up, right? It is because it has profound effects on the rest of the world when this shalom gets disrupted, gets vandalized. Vandalism of shalom, shalom is it's sometimes premeditated. Sometimes it's an intentional perverting of this, right? Planting us, he says this, is, um, specifically to pervert something is to twist it so that it serves an unworthy end instead of a worthy one, or so that it serves an entirely wrong end. Examples abound. 
A journalist distorts an event in order to render it more controversial and thus more newsworthy. A clergyman uses his office and authority to bend children to his sexual wishes. A juror casts her vote in trial to express her lifestyle preferences. A teenager uses a friendship to move up in the social pack. A head of state launches a short but lethal war against a tiny nation in order to boost the economy to raise his standings in the poll and bury criticism of his domestic performance. I think we can all understand how things like this are vandalism, right? We've experienced it. We've done it. But sin also happens unintentionally, too. This sort of vandalism we're talking about, it happens unintentionally as well. And I think it's important for us to consider it from this angle as well, okay? So I want to talk a little about about sin on autopilot, okay? The way that sin can kind of operate with this momentum, all right? And I'm going to use some examples of the seven deadly sins, Right? This is not an actual biblical listing. Pride, envy, sloth, anger, greed, gluttony, lust. This is not in the Bible, but it's something Christians have used as a way to kind of talk about you know, seven particularly destructive sins. And part of the reason they're so destructive is because they happen almost unconsciously. Right? These have a sort of momentum to them because they're involuntary. We actually oftentimes do them instinctually. We don't even realize we're doing these things. Right? You don't pr- think, think of it. You don't premeditate pride or envy, or greed, or lust. These just kind of happen. Have you, you've noticed that when you feel these things, right, it, it's not because you chose it. It just kind of happens to you. When someone gets the recognition that you want for something, you're not choosing to be envious. You're just kind of mad. You didn't get that, too. When someone who is fabulously wealthy has another opportunity to make a ton of money, even though it's the last thing they really need, they didn't just choose or decide in that moment to be greedy, greed is just a good business move for them in that moment. Let me give you another example of what sin on autopilot looks like. This comes from a Jewish philosopher who survived the Holocaust, someone named Hannah Arendt. And after World War II, there are these trials going on where certain people that were involved in the Nazi party were being put on trial by all these you know, countries who had uh, defeated them in the war. And so she's watching the trials against the Nazis, and there's one guy in particular, a guy named Adolf Eichmann, who his job had been to schedule the trains that took people um, from, you know, whatever destination they're at to the different um, concentration camps. This was his job. He, he was a scheduler of sending people off to their death, essentially. When we talk about Nazis, we're often thinking of, you know, people like Hitler, people who are overflowing with malice and this sort of insatiable desire to vandalize shalom, right? They get, it it gets, it's it's, it's fun for them, right? That's often what we think of, okay? But Hannah Arendt found that this guy that she was watching in this trial, Adolf Eichmann, he wasn't like that, okay? She thought, this is, this is just an ordinary dude, he is a, he's bland, he has no personality, he's a pencil pusher who she said was neither perverted nor sadistic, but, quote, terrifyingly normal. His sin was totally mindless. He, he didn't seem evil, he was actually incredibly thoughtless, she found. He just kind of drifted into this not giving any of it a second thought to what he was actually doing. And all he was really trying to do, she found, in his mind, it was to try to advance his career in the Nazi hierarchy, right? It was a means to an end. And so he was able to do this type of horrific sin 
without giving it a second thought, this sort of sin on autopilot happening in a way that he had really not even thought about, but was still having these devastating consequences, completely vandalizing the shalom that God had set up in the world. Okay, I think this is helpful for us because it gives us a good picture of something else about, our, about humans' vandalistic tendencies. Right? And that this is, when we do sin, it's for the intent of boomeranging back toward the self in some way. Okay, we have some goal that is self-centered, without even realizing it, but still leading us to vandalize shalom in some way. Right, Dave Zoll, a guy I quoted last week, he tells some stories about a couple of friends of his. And he says, one of them is lonely. So whenever she hangs out with you, you can't get a word in edgewise. And she asks no questions about you. Right? You guys probably know people like that, right? You kind of are just like, I don't really want to hang out with this person. I'm not going to get one question asked about me. It's because she's lonely. Or another friend, she's insecure, or he's insecure, so that he always makes it about him when good things happen to his friends, right? Oh, man, why can't good things ever happen to me? And instead of celebrating with, you know, the person who's had something good happen to them, he just makes it all about himself, just complaining about how nothing good ever happens to him. Now, in God's initial shalom-filled creation, human relation was supposed to lead to further flourishing, Okay, that's the point, I think, or one of the main points of the Adam and Eve story. But when we try to use humans to get something for ourselves, even without realizing it, shalom starts to fall apart, right? Loneliness and insecurity are not sins, not, not in the least, of, uh, uh, but those pressures, the kinds of stuff that we all face, Dave Zoll says, they curve us inward rather than outward, When the pressures of the world press in on us, our instinct is to make it all about us and to consider our needs above others. We're really good at seeing this, I think, in other people. I'm sure when I said that, you would start to think of people you know that do the same things, right? That was probably your first thought. But we're pretty bad at seeing it in ourselves. We tend to distrust other people's motives, but usually give ourselves the benefit of the doubt in some way. Now, in psychology, a guy named Lee Ross actually coined these terms. We would call this a fundamental attribution error, essentially where we distrust other people's motives, and then we would call it self-serving bias when it comes to us, an inability to really not cut ourselves loads of slack in different situations. And what this does is it makes us blind and and very difficult to sort of self-correct. And this is one of the challenges of all this. And here's maybe the worst part about this. Our self-centeredness can even corrupt the good stuff that we do, right? And I think this is especially dangerous in in an age that we all live in that is so focused on appearances, right? With the internet and the social media, we're very aware of and oftentimes scared of how our actions will be perceived by people around us, right? And that absolutely influences the stuff that we do. It's a very self-serving motive, okay? Think about how easy it is for you to do something that's genuinely good, okay? All objective measures, the thing that you did was very, a very good thing. But you find that when you really think about why you did it, you were doing it for the moral superiority that you would feel that when you get from others, their thanks, their gratitude, they're just kind of looking at you and thinking, you're so great, right? The sense of self-righteousness that would be pulsing through your veins after you do it right? You, you spend a night volunteering at a food kitchen. You spend an hour one morning helping a neighbor get their car unplowed out of the snow. You give your spouse a really long and thorough back massage, and you don't even ask for one back. 
And then what happens, right? Whoever helped you says, thank you so much. You're just great. I wish more people were like you. And as the dopamine rushes into your brain, you are already feeling like a god amongst, amongst mortals, and you smile as they confirm to you that you are, and you think, yeah, I am better than most people, aren't I? Right? Think of how good that feels. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean humans are incapable of truly self, selfless, loving actions right, that are in harmony with God's shalom. I don't believe that, whether we're talking about believers or non-believers. I really do think we're capable of doing that. But even when we do something that is out of true love, deep down, what is going to motivate us to do it again down the road? Is it the genuine opportunity to help someone else? Or is it chasing a comment when the last hit of the righteousness drug runs out? Okay? I would say, if, and even if I'm, I'm being charitable here, even often in our best moments, there's probably some mixture within us of those two things. I think the problem with this is that we learn to do good, not because we're trying to genuinely sustain God's shalom, but because it gets us some attention or makes us feel good in some way. Okay? So we're using this good deed to get something, ultimately, from somebody else. So that we really, we don't even necessarily care if, we're, if our actions are really building shalom or if uh, they're vandalizing it. Really, we're getting our reward. We're just in it for ourselves in some way. And that motivation means our future action will be to whatever gets us attention and whatever makes us feel good, even if it is something that maybe down the road does vandalize shalom in some way. But what boomerangs back to us, the thing we're often looking for, is rarely in the long run the self-gratification that I think we hoped for. Okay, eventually, it all implodes on itself. Julie's going to talk a little bit more about this next week, about the, the kind of corru- corrosive effects, the corruptive tendencies of sin on our world and in us. But just think about stuff we've already talked about here. Outrageous pride, we see this all the time. It leads people to career-killing fatal mistakes, right? Th- things that ruin their career for the rest of, rest of their life. Um, constant envy with all your friends' successes is going to lead someone to have no more friends to be envious of eventually, Someone's desperation for compliments will be noticed and will be, uh, it will make their good work come off as disingenuous and forced and so that people can tell that they're being used and now this person is forever going to be seen as someone who's just doing it for fake reasons. So the thing that they're looking for, they're never going to get that because no one trusts them anymore. They lose what they're seeking. Okay, the bill comes due in this life or the next. And all of this, I think, unfortunately, means that God's shalom is vandalized over and over and over again, where even real hurt can lead to sin, and then that sin leads to more hurt. So what does God do about all this? I think it's really important that we don't just explain the problem, but we ask, what is God's response to all of this? He's the one who set the world up full of shalom in the first place. How is he going to respond? That's, I think, the question that we should have as we read the Bible. God's plan to respond to vandalism, I don't think it starts top-down in the way that we would envision it might, right? Something like, passing legislation or, you know, uh, jailing the bad guys or just mobilizing a group of people to shame everybody else, okay? God's approach is a bottom-up one, to turn people from vandals into saints and to believe that that will have an effect of restoring shalom in his world. Okay, let's look at Romans 5, 1 to 2. 
Paul says, therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace. Okay, now Paul's writing in Greek. He's not writing in Hebrew. The Old Testament's in Hebrew. The New Testament is in Greek. But this is the Greek equivalent of the word shalom right here. Okay, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. So here's what Paul's saying here. If you read the whole book of Romans, he kind of unpacks this whole long argument where he says that the first thing you have to do to change someone from a vandal to a saint isn't to destroy them with shame. Okay, I think that can be our response so many times when we see someone vandalizing shalom in some way is to make them feel the shame that they should feel from recognizing what's going on. Okay? But God's response is not to start there with us. It's actually to forgive them, to make shalom with them, to free them from shame and guilt, and to give them the opportunity for a different destiny. And I think that's what starts the process of transformation. Instead of punishing us by letting sin consume us, God offers us a rescue from it, both now and the future, by bringing us into peace, into shalom with him. To forgive us of our vandalism and to put us in the right through having Jesus take on the consequences of our sin, which is death, in our place. Acknowledging, yes, there has been vandalism of his shalom, but declaring to us that though we have been vandals of shalom, he will not hold this against us. Now, theologians call this justification. That's a big word to describe this whole process I've just described. And instead of letting the bill come due on us, he instead has it come due on Jesus. The sacrifice, giving us shalom back once again, restoring it between us and him. And we believe this. We trust this through faith. It gives us a new identity, one that is exempt from the consequence of death. Now, vandalism of shalom, it's a way of saying that sin brings disorder to God's world. That's how we've been primarily talking about it here. But I think if we're honest, if we really think about the totality of what takes place when God's world gets disordered, gets vandalized, we recognize we have often been disordered too. We, our own hearts, have been vandalized as well. There is no shalom within us because of the effects of sin and vandalism on us. Things that are inside of us that are supposed to be bound together have been separated, and things that have supposed to be separated within us have been bound together, and it creates this disruption within us as well that is a mirror of what's gone on in God's world. We talked a lot last week about this sort of chain reaction that sin has, right? It's not just that there's just vandalism of shalom out there in the world. This has profound effects on us as well. It messes us up in a lot of different ways. It creates all of the different things that we struggle with throughout our day-to-day lives. The things that can cripple us, can give us anxiety, depression. We've been disordered. We've been vandalized through sin as well. We're hurting from it. We're scarred from that. And we've known no other way to respond but to vandalize ourselves. That's all we know, really. But God takes us, disordered as we are from our own sinning and the ways we've been abused and vandalized and hurt, and he brings shalom and peace to our hearts through Jesus, restoring us back to God, despite the fact that we've contributed to it. If you are in Christ, okay, your identity is not a vandalizer of shalom. 
It is a recipient of God's shalom through Jesus. And as we learn from Jesus how shalom makes us whole, we can take that experience of that grace and be restorers of shalom in the world around us. Okay, make no mistake, Christians do this. We do this as wounded healers, not entirely free from the sickness ourselves. Okay, and I think it's so important that we never forget that. Okay, only the humble can truly be restorers of God's shalom. That autopilot feature, it still gets turned on. Right? We still show our vandalistic tendencies. Our self-centeredness still comes out. That's never going to go away fully in this life until God restores us fully and makes us new one day. But if you're in Christ, that's not who you are. You're not who you are afraid you are. There's all these identities that are vying in our heads to define us. But in those moments, we have to remember that you are who God says you are. As a disciple of Jesus and through God's spirit, you are capable of being a restorer of shalom too. Even if you think you're too vandalized to do it, I think the good news of the gospel, the good news of being brought back into the peace of God, the shalom of God, is that we're now turned into people who can be agents of it. And I think that's such good news for us, especially as we reflect on all the damage and vandalism in the world around us. We're going to enter into a time of worship and communion here. We take communion every single week as a way to remind ourselves that Jesus has brought us shalom and peace with God. And he's done it through uh, the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. When we take communion, we're tuning ourselves back to that reality, okay, as a way to sort of harmonize ourselves back with God so that when we go back into the world, after we leave here, we're reminding ourselves of who our identity is as people who have been brought back into peace and shalom with God and as people who are peacemakers, shalom restorers, in the world around us. In big ways or small ways, whatever opportunities you have because of what it looks like, what your life looks like, that's who you are. And and communion is a way to remind us of that. And then we'll be spending some time in worship where we'll just be uh, worshiping God, thanking God for what he's done, for bringing us shalom in the first place and restoring in us even when there's been vandalism to it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the one who established our world with shalom in the first place. You, uh, you brought your peace and your harmony, your order to a world that was in chaos, that needed it, God. And despite the fact that we so often um, and the world around us, everything around us seems to be working at times to bring our world back into the chaos and disorder that it was in before you brought your shalom to it, God, you have made a way to bring us back into peace with you and have made it so that we can be people who do the same in the world around us, as we follow after Jesus, as we trust in him, have faith in him, God, you transform us so that we might be more like your son, Jesus. I pray that you'd help us to do that, God. Bring shalom into our hearts, God, where we have been vandalized, and make it so that we can be people who do the same around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.